Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Um, If you could stand with us, if you're able to, uh, if you haven't yet already, for the reading of the Word of God. Reading out of Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives and they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide. Um, Another translation says strive with man or abide in man forever for he's flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. There were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved them to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man, whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. And then this line, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word on our, our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We've been in a series um, entitled, uh, very simply, Origin Story. Uh, when you go into any great piece of literature, uh, like the Marvel movies, um, <laughs> origin story is something that, that tells the backstory of someone. It talks about their motivations, um, uh, their history, what shaped who they are and drives them. And all of us as humanity have an origin story, and we find it in the book of Genesis. And so as we've been walking through this origin story, we've been um, examining different aspects. And one of the key things that we find from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible is about something called salvation history. That's the whole thing is interwoven. And it's amazing because this is a book that's been written over hundreds, uh, thousands of years' time from different languages and cultures and people and everything else. And yet there's a continuity that's just incredible with this. And so as we've been looking at Adam, and uh, Adam uh, has uh, Cain, Abel, Adam and Eve. And um, we're told in Genesis 3.15 that the Satan, uh, Lucifer, who had caused the fall of man, that there was going to be someone come along through the lineage of man that he would bruise his heel, Lucifer would bruise his heel, but, but this individual, meaning Jesus Christ, was going to crush his head. It would be a complete uh, destruction of him. And so there's Adam and Eve, then there's Cain and Abel, and Lucifer, very conscious of this, manages to um, corrupt the one and have the other one murdered. So Abel's murdered, Cain is completely corrupted and even unaware of his sin. Uh, Seth is another child that's born to them, and it's through the line of Seth that we find the lineage of Jesus coming. And as we take from Seth, you find the line coming down then to Noah. And um, with Noah, there is actually um, all that flows eventually to Jesus. But from Noah, uh, he has three sons, um, and one of those sons' name is Shem, 
Now, I know it's confusing because three, and you hear the name Shem, and you're doing three stooges. No, that's Shemp, completely someone different. Um, doesn't show up until way past the New Testament, period. Um, so Shem, and his grandson is a guy named Eber. And um, that's important for this reason. Shem, if you've ever heard of the term Semitic, or sometimes you hear the term anti-Semitic, the Semitic people um, flow through Shem, Shem or the Shemitic, Semitic people. That's where that flows through. And then his grandson is, uh, um, uh, great-grandson actually, is Eber, whose name works out in time to the subgroup of, of Semitic people called the Hebrews. So from Eber, we draw Hebrew. And so this is the line that we're following so far, and we get to where we're at here now. Now, as we look into this passage here, we find that even though there was a, a starting with Adam and Eve and how that gets corrupted and then the murder of these guys and then the reestablishment with the line of Seth and things start to continue on, we left that where they're starting to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a little revival. After that, somewhere down the line, it just goes downhill really fast. And so um, there's, there's this time here where there's a multiplication, so there's masses of people now. Um, and there's something of a darkness there's a thing that is so violent, so dark, so perverse from every possible category that in verse 5, it's saying that every intention, every single intention and thoughts of, of mankind's heart was only evil continually, like all the time. This was a dark, horrible time. There was also something else going on just before this, the sons of God and the daughters of man. And, and something about that creates something strange going on here too. And there's kind of two theories of this. One is that the sons of God were the, the, the descendants of Seth, so they were more righteous, if you will. And then the descendants of Cain um, were the, the, um, uh, um, the, either way, that they ended up coming up together in some way. And that's, that's a, it's a pollution of the line, genetically, if you will, spiritually to some degree. Another theory, because of something that's said in the book of Jude about where angels left their natural habitat and came down and that, that possibly there was some of these one-third of these angels that followed Satan that become demons somehow has some involvement too. Either one of those, we don't know, but either way, there was some attempt to pollute, if you will, uh, and, and to mess up the spiritual genetic line, if you will, through which eventually there's going to be salvation. And Lucifer is behind this. This is why he has Abel killed Cain, Seth. Then we have this line coming into play. So something was trying to corrupt that whole thing and was successful because the entire planet is in chaos. It's something that's so twisted and so broken. But this passage is very redemptive. In, in verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later because it's another translation that expresses it somewhat differently. But he found favor. And so there's something about Noah that caught God's attention that was different from all the rest of what was going on. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, these are the generations of Noah. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. There was something about um, Noah's orientation towards God and whether it was something of, of his genetic purity back to Seth or spiritual purity. And when we're talking genetic purity, we're not talking eugenics or racial issues. But there's something about that line to Seth, that righteous line, um, that resides within Noah. And there's a purity of some type within him. And so while there's nothing good that can be found, something good is found in Noah. 
And then he has these three children, as we said, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Shem, we said, continues the line all the way through to Jesus. Ham and Japheth, um, Japheth we can set aside for right now. Ham kind of enters in because after the flood, uh, at one point in time, there's two things that happen immediately after the flood and when they land on Mount Ararat. One is that um, they begin immediately to worship God. Noah offers a sacrifice. So the first action coming out of the ark is an act of worship. It's a worship service. Not necessarily the second act, um, but not too far after that, as he plants a vineyard and then uh, um, makes a, a really, really pretty potent wine, evidently, out of it, and he gets drunk, okay, um, at one point. It's presumably quite a ways down the line here. He's naked in his drunkenness, and um, Ham, his son, comes in, <laughs> Dad's naked. <laughs> he goes and tries to the other guys, Dad's naked, he's drunk. And the other boys react completely different. They sit here and go, okay, it's not right for us to see our father in his nakedness, regardless of what the case is. They don't join Ham in his uh, um, delight in the moment. Instead, they enter into the tent backwards, taking a covering, and without looking, cover their father's nakedness. And there's something about this that we see again and again and again throughout Scripture. That when someone stumbles or falls or does an issue, not covering up, that's a different issue, but, but not taking delight and, and, and approaching that in a righteous fashion. And so when, when Noah becomes conscious of things again, uh, he condemns his son Ham. Ham later is, his descendants are the Canaanites, who are the ones that the children of Israel, the children of Shem, are going to conflict with, the Hebrews with, in taking over the land of Canaan, or Israel, in the future. And so we see some of these levels of conflict uh, rooted in almost a, a type of extended civil rivalry, even early on taking place here. So... This is what's happening here, and as it's going along, the earth is corrupt again, it says in verse 11. Uh, it goes into this whole thing, I'm going to make an end to everything, because it's violence. Everything's violence. Hold that thought. So I'm going to destroy them. So in verse 14, he says, make yourself an ark. Gopherwood. No one has any idea what gopherwood is. I just think it's funny, gopherwood. Um, but you're supposed to make rooms in it. We're not going to go into the whole ark establishment and things of what's involved with that. What you need to understand, though, is what the term ark is, because we think of an ark today in this context, especially Noah, and we think that the ark is this great ship, and that's not really what it is. The term ark itself means a box or a chest. This ark was not a great sailing vessel. There were no sails, there were no engines, there was nothing to propel this. It was strictly to preserve life. It wasn't meant to go on a three-hour tour or any other kind of tour. This thing was designed for a specific purpose to preserve life, just to float. There was no direction, no guidance to it, nothing else of that nature. It was a huge box full of life. And it was called an ark, and that's what that term means, this gigantic, gigantic uh, you know, large box that's going to hold life. And as we think of the term ark in the context of, of this, and it, it should be noted that this was huge. Uh, some of the studies say that it wasn't until the late 1800s that a ship was devolved, uh, evolved in our society that equaled or was greater than the ark. So for thousands of years, this, you could say, set the standard. 
But you hear the term ark, and that, that should ring a bell with some of you great scholars out there. There's another type of ark that we find later down the line, and that's referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, okay, which we all know is in a warehouse in Washington, D.C., where Indiana Jones is watching over it even now, okay? Um, so, but that's also the, and, and why is it called an ark? Again, because it's a chest. It's a box. And inside that are not the original two commandments, because the original two commandments, Moses breaks in his anger at the children of Israel. We'll discuss that later. And there's only two, not three, because Mel Brooks broke the third one um, ways back. And so there, there are these two reworks of the, of the items are in there, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's another thing that also references life or salvation. As we look at the passage, we find that, that, that he's supposed to create this ark and then he's supposed to take in animals two by two and it specifies them as male and female. We see this throughout scripture. The concept of a binary is consistent through scripture, through nature, through all of history. It's only in later times that we began to uh, challenge that somewhat. And so as we look at this type of, an, of, a, of the ark, we also find something else happening. There's going to be a covenant that's going to take place. And um, in verse chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, I'm going to bring a flood of waters. I'm going to destroy everything. But I'm going to establish my covenant with you. A covenant was an agreement. It was um, something that was formed. We, we talk about a marriage covenant. And, and that instantly is a biblical perspective, not a contract. We view it as a legal thing today. But originally it was a covenant that you enter into and you don't walk out of. That was the original concept. Um, so in this case, there's a covenant that's provided. Some of those require something of you. Some of them don't. This one doesn't seem to require anything. It was, it was we'll go into that in a moment. Let's, let's back this up for a minute. As we're going into this, the establish my covenant, just mark that there. One other thing I want you to note about him was this, meaning Noah. Second Peter chapter 2, 5 tells us something. He says, if he did not spare, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And someone pointed out to me uh, recently, and you have to think about this, there are only eight people that were saved in the entire planet. Only eight. Noah is one of them. And he's referred to here as a preacher of righteousness. As a preacher of righteousness. So he was a preacher. So there's judgment upon the planet because it's completely screwed up. It's going to be wiped out by a flood. Now it's taking decades probably for him to build this ark. It would have been noticed. You can't build something as big as this thing and have it in your driveway without people making comments. Okay? Even if you put it in the backyard somewhere, people are saying, so, hey, no, what's up? Bill Nark, you know, Bill Cosby's out of favor today, but he has a brilliant take on this from years back, you know? And so they're commenting on it. So he's telling them, here's why I'm doing it. Here's what's happening. Here's where I'm going with all this. So he's a preacher. Now, from your perspective, depending on your perspective, he's either the greatest preacher that ever lived or the worst. Why the worst? Because for decades, he's telling these people, there's judgment coming. God is going to judge us all, and there's going to be things. Come out of this. There's, there's going to be a place of safety if you would just repent of your ways and come. And, and after decades of this, his number of converts is zero. 
So we can say Noah is the absolute worst preacher that ever lived. Decades and nada. <laughs> or, again, depending on perspective, is it based on numbers? God's never based things on numbers. Not in that sense. It was on his faithfulness. And think of the, the, the challenge of faithfully standing up for the ways of God for decades with constant ridicule. You're building a boat. Great. You realize the ocean's like a thousand miles away. This is the stupidest thing ever. We're out here in the desert or we're out here in some whatever. And there's, you're doing this. The ridicule that would have come. And yet for decades, he was faithful. For decades, he spoke the truth. Today, we have cancel culture. We have ridicule from all over the place. And we are told as Christians, do you want to keep your beliefs in a box? But nobody else is doing that. Why should we? We're told that, that you can't speak to the issue. Don't, don't force your beliefs. About it. I'm not forcing anything, but can I verbalize those? Everyone else is. I'm not talking about dictatorship or, 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 or controlling people, but the ability to stand. And many times we can't even do that. We get so caught with the ridicule of neighbors and friends, family, the culture around us that we refuse to take a stand on any issue. And when we do take a stand, it tends to be aggressive and harsh because we're so insecure and fearful of what we're doing that we come out that way instead of having a confidence and a quietness and a strength of just stating the truth and realizing that there's sometimes things behind the people that we disagree that is dark and ugly and not the person themselves. And we need to keep that firmly in our mind. There's a level of violence that is on the earth. And so he holds strong. So I would argue that he was actually one of the greatest preachers because nobody ever had adversity like he did. Where the entire world, we think it sometimes, oh, the world's against me. He had the entire world against him. Including extended family, except for his immediate family. We go along in the, in the scripture, though, back to Genesis chapter 7. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and we think, wow, that was a tough time for 40 days and 40 nights. We have rain for one day. Clinton River overflows, and we think we're freaking out, okay? I, I was out gone one time. One of the really bad floods came, and I'm getting pictures of people canoeing on Garfield Road, and I'm like, that's bizarre. Now imagine 40 days 40 nights, nonstop rain. Water bursts forth from, from the ground, it says, and so there's water everywhere for 40 days. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just 40 days. And the water's prevailed on the earth, verse 24, for 150 days. So it's raining for 40. And then the water's staying for another 150. And we're cooped up inside of this boat. And the only people with me are my relatives. Can you think of anything worse? Okay? Amen. <laughs> Boy, that's revealing. <laughs> so for this entire time you're there, and I'm topping it all off, it's not like you have just your pet with you. You have all sorts of pets with you. And all the aromas that go with this. And the storm goes on for 40 days of storming. And then finally, um, for this quiet moment of 150 days. Interesting thing is almost, uh, there's a vast majority of ancient cultures that all have a flood story of some type or another. I'm not going to try to get into the science of all this one way or the other. It's not a scientific book. It's about salvation. 
but it's a broader story than just even here. So the, they come off of that moment of time, and the first thing that they do is they sacrifice. There's an immediate act of worship. It's the very first thing. And then in chapter 9 of Genesis, and God blessed Noah and his son and said to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's an echo of, of something earlier that was said in Genesis. The fear of you, and the, well, let's just stop there for a minute. This is a second Genesis now. Everything's wiped out. This is the rebirth of mankind. In other words, we blew it so badly that everything had to be clean slate with the exception of Noah and his, and his family. And so now it's a restart, a reboot, if you will. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then this interesting statement, the fear of you and the dread of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird in heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground, all the fish of the sea. If you noticed that throughout time, animals are fearful of human beings, even if they never encountered a human being before. There's something built into them from this moment on here that fears man, and, and for good reason. We're one of those terrifying people out there, creatures out there. Nobody can create more havoc than mankind can. And so animals are fearful of us. And part of it is because they even established here, God made it to be so, to put us at the top of the ladder on this. Into your hand, all these things are going to be delivered, he says. Every moving thing... Uh, that lives shall be a food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Except for eggplant. Eggplant you should not eat. That's just bad. It's just <laughs> nasty. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Even early on, before we only knew in recent times that blood is essential to life, that there's something about that involvement. But right early on in Scripture, we're told, don't, don't, eat, don't drink the blood. There's something about it has life. And, and bloodshed and the, the, the sacrifice of blood for sin, all that stuff. It says in verse 5, and for your lifeblood, for your lifeblood, I'm going to require a reckoning from now on. From every beast, I'll require it. You notice every time you read about an animal that killed a human being, that animal's put down. If it's in the wild, we hunt it down. Why? Because they have a taste now for flesh, maybe. That's not good. But also, there's just something innate in us. We put down any animal, even your closest pet. If they take somebody out, we take out the animal. God's sitting here and saying, why? Because I'm going to require a reckoning for it. And from man. From his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. And then the law comes into place. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Life is so precious. It's so valuable that the only thing that pays for it is another life. Cain no longer has a, has a pass. From this point forward, you take a life, your life is forfeit. Innocent life. Innocent life. We're in the midst of a time right now where we can't seem to distinguish any of that. It's come out even openly right now that, yeah, we know that this little child kind of, well, yeah, it's life, it's, it's life, but it doesn't matter. For my convenience, I'll do what I'm going to do. But God says that we shouldn't do that, that innocent life, that that should not be the case. And so all these things are being established right here and now um, in this new moment of, of, of renewal for the planet. And now we come across the covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, I'll establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'll make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I'll set my bow, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. There's going to be this covenant. 
this is the first, technically the second, Adam had a covenant as well, that we're going to see as we go through this. There's the Noah's, there's, there's a covenant with Abraham, there's a covenant with Moses and the children of Israel on Sinai. This is the first one that's spelled out in this fashion. It's an unconditional covenant. It doesn't matter what we do. God's saying, I will not do this. I will no longer destroy the world. Now, notice the, the language here. <laughs> it's legal language. I will no longer destroy the world with water. Later we find out that he's saying there will be a time that I am going to destroy the world again. Judgment will come, and it's going to be with fire this time, but no water, okay? Um, it was made to Noah, all his descendants, everybody. And third, it's marked with a specific marker. I'm assuming at this point in time that all of us have seen a rainbow at one point in time in our life. You know, we, we get really geeked out. I saw somebody get excited, and it was a TikTok before TikTok YouTube thing, and, and they were just freaking out, just like, it's a double rainbow, it's a double rainbow. Oh, my God, it's a double rainbow. It's like, okay, get a life, kid, okay? And so there's something beautiful about that. Now, we're not supposed to talk anymore about what the rainbow originally means because the original meaning of the rainbow was a statement of God's grace. It was very specific it was saying that there's not going to be judgment um, in this way anymore. It was a mark of a covenant of, of, a, of a way of taking a family and saying, let's establish relationship now and forever. We've taken the rainbow in our culture today and very much in our American culture. We started this. We've made it to be a symbol of, of pride, of arrogance, of rebellion. And you can say, well, you're really hitting on the LGBT. No, I'm saying... Honestly, our entire nation has taken that symbol and it covers anything, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever the case is anymore. It's just become our statement of saying, no, we're going to take this, which was meant for a symbol of grace and, and, and forgiveness and provision, and we're going to take it instead as our symbol to be used in other ways. And there's something profoundly um, sad about that. I don't hear any anger in my tone. I hear a sadness about that because what this really orients to is the title of this message today, Lost Generation. You see, the term lost generation or the lost generation in history refers to a specific um, grouping of people. Generation in the Bible doesn't always mean an age group like generation X or Y or, or millennial. It refers to every one of these people. When Jesus is saying this generation, he's saying all this, all this generation, all this culture today but there is one in our history, and they're referred to as the lost generation. You see, this lost generation, they were a group of people from, that, that were born roughly from 1883 to 1900, just around the turn of the last century. In, in Europe, they're referred to as the generation of 1914 because it was the day or the year that World War I began. The lost generation was this group of people, this age group, that one writer says is disoriented, wandering, directionless in their spirit. Um, Gertrude Stein's credited with coining the term. It was popularized later by Ernest Hemingway, who used the epigraph for his 1926 novel, The Sun Also Rises, when he said, you are all a lost generation. Um, in a more general sense, the lost generation is, is made up of individuals that were born in this time period who came of age during World War I. In the wake of the Industrial Revolution, Western members of the lost generation grew up in societies which, catch this, were more literate, consumerist, 
and more media-saturated than ever before up to that point in time. The lost generation was also heavily vulnerable uh, at the time of the Spanish pandemic, flu pandemic, similar to where we've had today. They became a driving force behind many cultural changes, including in major cities during what became known as the Roaring Twenties. Part of what caused them to be lost is, is they were part of a surge in an understanding of the humanistic spirit of mankind that we've evolved and developed to such a degree we have grown and achieved so much technically in every other way that, that, that there, there's just nothing but optimism about the future. In 1900s, there was a movement in this country to actually close the patent office. After all, we've, we've uh, created the, 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 uh, the telephone and, and the motor car. What else is there to discover? So in 1900, let's close the patent office because there's no new inventions that could possibly be invented. That was the optimism. There'll not be war anymore. We're eventually getting rid of that. We're evolving in such a way. And then World War I came along and the meat grinder that was the violence of that moment and it devastated a generation. It broke them. They were shattered by it and realized, no, this is mankind. Ugly, violent, brutal. We haven't moved at all from the time of Noah. And it left them as a people broken. Jesus spoke to this issue because Jesus believed in the flood, incidentally. Because he speaks at one point in time uh, in, the, in, in uh, Matthew, the book of Matthew. And he says this, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus' return. It's going to be like the days of Noah. And I haven't put the rest up, but listen to it. He goes on to say, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, then they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. What he's saying is they were clueless. Despite all the preaching and teaching that Noah did, no one had a clue. They were doing their normal thing, living out their normal perversities and everything else that was part of that and rebellion. And then suddenly, in a moment's time, it ended. He was saying, in other words, that it was similar to the same time as the time of Noah is when he's going to come back again. It's going to be that same generational twist an exploding population like we see in Genesis 6.1, sexual perversion like we see in Genesis 6.2, demonic activity as we said like in Genesis 6.2, constant evil in the heart of man, Genesis 6.5, and widespread corruption and violence, Genesis 6.11. We can achieve things with our technology that we've never done before. We've become... Gods, in a way. One writer uh, puts it in a brief history of humankind. Yuval Noah Harari, uh, an Israeli writer, says, Homo sapiens were still this insignificant creature minding its own business, you know, in the corner of Africa. And in the following millennia, it transformed itself into the master of the entire planet from 70,000 years ago, he's saying, and terror of the ecosystem. Today it stands on the verge of becoming a god, poised to acquire not only eternal youth, but also the divine abilities of creation and destruction. He rose on to write and say, we are more powerful than ever before, but have very little idea of what to do with all that power. Worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever before. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company. We are accountable to no one. 
We are constantly wreaking havoc on our fellow creatures and on the surrounding ecosystem, seeking a little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. Is there anything more dangerous? He closes with this, this sentence that captures me. Is there anything more dangerous? Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? There's nothing more irresponsible than gods that don't know what they want. We are in the midst of a lost generation. Oh, you're picking on the millennials. No, the Xers. Oh, the Ys. No, I'm using it the term that Jesus used to talk about this current age. We'll find out eventually that we are not gods, that there are prices to pay for the expression of sexuality outside the confines of marriage between a man and a woman that this whole concept of exploration we're doing that eventually will crash and burn us. At that time, well, will we turn? When I was growing up, there was always a sense that Christ is going to come back any time and we were caught with the end times. And as the decades rolled on, um, maybe, maybe it'll be a while, a while yet, maybe yet. And, and, and then there were revivals all the times when I was growing up and there's the emotional expression and you build yourself up again and go to a retreat and then, you're, and then you crash back on down again. And I saw people that would just fly so high and then just go back and doing stupid stuff and I'm like, okay, it's not that way. And so I moved away from the ideas. Not that I don't believe in revival, I do. Not that I don't believe in end time that I do, but maybe not now. But now time is hitting right now, guys, where I'm really beginning to think that we're in the end time. And that the only answer is a revival. That there needs to be something of us that comes back to a realization of our responsibility, not just to one another, but to God. That we're in a concept of time right now where violence, we just spoke a few weeks ago, we named a politician that said, look, don't demonize that person. And now that person's husband just was beaten with a hammer in his own household because they were looking for her. The rhetoric in this country is insane and it's being propagated by Christians in part. The people of truth, the people of peace have fallen for lies and become part of the violence. This generation is lost. But is there going to be anyone, is there going to be anyone that God can look to and say, wait a minute, there are two passages of scriptures I would leave you with here today that bring hope in the midst of the despair that we find ourselves surrounded in. I would first say, one, that we are to stand as Noah did with faithfulness, even in the midst of a culture that wants to dismantle you and ridicule you. That we are to do that with calmness and a quiet spirit, with love and with grace, and not with hatred and violence. But the passages that I'm drawn to... You find in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, I read it earlier, that Noah found favor. But this translation in the King James, I really like because it says this. It puts a specific spin on what that favor was. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. If you're part of this lost generation, regardless of your age, if you bought into the lies of this generation, if you've polluted yourself with the garbage of this generation, the pornography, all the crap that is part of this, the gossip, the lies, the dissension, the, the violence, there's still hope for you. 
If you turn your eyes towards God, that he can look upon you with grace and restore you. That we don't have to be lost, but the scripture says that Jesus came to seek that which was lost. They would be found. And then this passage in Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. And those that entered in, male and female, can't get away from the binary of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. And then this, and the Lord shut him in. What is that about? The Lord shut him in. What that means, my friends, is simply this. He may have built the ark at God's direction. It was the floating place for life and for salvation. It was to point to all the other issues of salvation down the line. And in obedience, they followed God's instruction. They walk in. But God shut the door. God shut the door. They didn't do that by themselves. He provided the final sealing and closure that provided their protection for all the storms and strife they were going to face over the next number of months and preserve their lives. We don't win our salvation. We don't do good and get blessed by God. We are broken by our sin. We look at all the brokenness and violence around us and we don't say, well, at least I'm better than that idiot over there. Raka. Instead, we sit here and say, no, it's me and my relationship and it's broken and I can't fix it, God. And when we turn it to him, we lay it at his feet, then we find grace. We find grace. And he provides a place of safety and a place of preserving life. And he welcomes us to come in. And then he shuts the door and he seals that. And there's nothing else that can break through that. If you're part of this lost generation today, there'll be a time of a reckoning. There'll be a time of a judgment. It won't be a flood, but it'll be something else. And it may not be the end of time. It may be something you find this week or this month or this year in your life. I don't say this to scare you. I'm just saying this is the fallout of not following God. It's like gravity. It happens. There's laws. But if you would take this time now, even now, this morning, even now. See, there's a part of this depresses me today because I'm the preacher in this situation. I, I don't even like that term. I like pastor. I don't like preacher. But in this moment, I am. And I dare to hope that I might have a higher track record than Noah <laughs> in this moment. There'd be one of us here this morning, two of us, three of us, that would sit here and say, my life needs God. I need his ways and not mine. Regardless in this moment of time, not in arrogance, but in humility, I've been faithful. And I can tell you one of the reasons why is because like Paul says, I'm one of the chief sinners. That doesn't mean you keep doing it or apologize or, or make ways for it. No, you don't. I'm broken. I return from that. I turn away from that, pursue the things of God. But I'm the same as you. I'm just another, another, another hungry, starving person who found bread and is offering it now to those of you here in this room. Jesus, you said that you are the bread of life. You are that which sustains and gives hope to the world. This first ark was created to be a vehicle of life, a place of salvation that you shut Noah and his family in. 
Later, there's the Ark of the Covenant. Even Moses is in a little ark that he's put as in a child, eventually to bring salvation from slavery. And then, God, you arrived as Jesus in the flesh, as a little baby in, a, in another type of ark in a manger. All these symbolisms we see all the way through Scripture, your plan through the, through the centuries to come to this moment of time, to meet maybe even just with one person here this morning and say, you are mine, you've been lost, but today I find you. Will you respond to me? And for those of us in this room that do, we say right now, God, we are sinners, we have failed. And we don't want to keep failing. We know the wages of sin or death. We know the failure, what it's going to cost us and those who found us. So we come to you in humility and brokenness, and we say together, God, forgive us. We come out of this generation, and we want to enter into your ark of salvation. And so we say, God, forgive us. Look to your son's sacrifice on the cross and let that blood cover us today that we would be held blameless despite our failures, God. And then give us the strength to know that you are with us in the storms and to weather those and be the people that you want us to be without pollution, without the distraction in, in humility, but to be the people you want us to be, Lord God. And so this morning, even now, I ask, Lord, that you would just come by your Holy Spirit and you'd hover in this room, that you'd minister hearts and minds in this moment of time as we submit it to you in Jesus' name. Part of the issue with the lost generation and, and where we face today is they forgot their origin story. They remembered part of it that that there's a stamp of divinity upon them. And so with hubris and with pride, they rose up and said, we're getting better and better and greater and greater, and we have no faults. But our origin story doesn't just have the stamp of divinity. It also has the mark of sin. From our father Adam, with Cain, Lamech, and the list goes on, down to us. But we don't have to embrace that lineage we can embrace the lineage of Seth and Noah and Shem and Eber and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We can embrace the lineage that we have in Jesus Christ. But to do that, we have to humble ourselves. There'll be those available up front here if you'd like to come for prayer. Um, as you go into this week and the next time you look at a rainbow, in the sky realize that you walk under a covenant of grace Amen. next week the service is going to be a little different I'm going to have some friends help me out with some things and we continue on with the origin story but with a little bit of a different twist next week I hope you'll join us Father we come before you and we thank you for it's by your grace that we are saved and we don't stop there, nor do you. Your Holy Spirit continues to work in us to have us be changed, to not go back to the failings of the past, but to move on into better things in you. So strengthen us, I pray, as your church and as your people, and draw this lost generation to yourself, I pray. Draw us to yourself. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen, amen. amen.